Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to Talkville 21. I'm your host, Shane McLaurin, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Professor Thurston Carlson, Associate Professor with Roskilde University in Denmark and the American University of Paris, where she teaches international law and human rights-related topics. Professor Carlson has also published extensively on international criminal law and transitional justice. Links to her work can be found in the description. Her first book for a general audience, The Justice Laboratory, Internationalizing Law in Africa, examines how international criminal law fails to support the rule of law in Africa. Published by Chatham House and Brookings, it is forthcoming in fall 2021. Now, without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, tell us a little bit about the development of, of human rights. Let, let's make that question as broad okay. as possible. <laughs> All right. So I think, so we, you know, we situate ourselves in the post-war era and based on our modern world have actually been able to, on a massive scale, deprive people of the most basic of human rights, the right mm -hmm. to life, right? That's the Second World War. It's been incredibly deadly and, mm -hmm. and, and global. Mm -hmm. um, and in the wake of that, there are sort of, there's a series, in a way, it's a kind of a wake-up call, right? Mm. So in, in the aftermath of that terrible circumstance, again, and the Holocaust really factors very broadly here, but then there, of course, are also the Geneva Conventions that come out of the Second World War that have to do with how it is that we wage war and a recognition of the value of human life, even as we want to securitize and militarize and fight for things that we find are important, right? But that we still will somehow try and regulate and constrain that human activity. And so we get the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and there the, the original ideas were really freedom from fear, freedom from want, right? Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of things that sort of go away in our more modern applications of human rights, which we tend to think of as largely political rights. Mm -hmm. So you've been through this exercise before, but like the negative rights, right? So mm -hmm. your state will not do certain things to you. Your state will not oppress you in certain ways. And if they do, then that's a violation of your rights and you can complain to your state about that level of oppression. But the idea of the positive rights, like the things that one would need in order to have a good and meaningful life, which were part of the original conception, those have really, um, in, in, many, in many ways, been pushed to the side. And that's because a certain vision of political rights kind of took hold in the United States, and the United States was this big sort of purveyor. So we had this kind of explosion of a notion of less state, like keep the oppressive state at bay, which is handy in some ways, but then also, of course, uh, really devalues all the things a state could possibly do, the ways in which a state represents a form of organization that can be rallied for human good, right? All the things that states do that are very effective. And so anyway, so that's, we have this kind of development of human rights through the 20th century to where we now find ourselves in the 21st century, where we have, for example, our international criminal court, right? International criminal law, which is a judicialization of violations of core human rights, right? Mm -hmm. So. That's genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, which, which have to do sort of very fundamentally with life or how we experience life in our body mm -hmm. and our right to not be uh, targeted, oppressed, damaged in those areas. But also international criminal law individually criminalizes violations of those core rights. So when there is a genocide, when there's a crime of hum against humanity, then international criminal law makes it possible to identify a or some guilty parties mm -hmm. and chase after them and potentially put them in jail. So those things are connected and on the one hand, 
international criminal law really adds to a conception of human rights because it says someone can be punished by violating your right if you know if your village has been attacked and people have been killed and that's a crime against humanity there's been an attack mm -hmm. then in fact someone uh, that's not just a tragedy or bad things oh too bad you lived in that village or that yeah. was unfortunate that these people got power or or allocated weapons etc but instead you can say not tragedy, instead it's crime. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a kind of a conceptual shift that's really powerful and really important. But on the other hand, we stay at the level of the individual. So instead of thinking about the global structural forces that make it interesting for a small group of armed men to overrun a village while chasing after whatever it is that they're trying, seeking to control, which is the case in like swaths across the globe, right? Mm. Instead of asking those larger structural questions that are nuanced, that are more complex, and where there's not sort of one villain with a black hat, right? You, mm. it's, hard to, it's hard to individualize the guilt that way. Mm. We instead insist on simplifying it and we say, well, who's the person who was fighting in that army, who commanded that army, who, et cetera, and mm. then that person can go to jail. So we actually sort of, we, again, and this comes back to my notion of self-righteousness, we pat ourselves on the back for, for recognizing human rights and for insisting that atrocities shall not meet with impunity, right? That we will prosecute these actions. And then we assure ourselves that we have a guilty party and we've done the right thing. And we manage to kind of myopically look past a series of the kind of important questions that probably tell us more about whether or not violations of this kind will happen again than anything this one particular individual did. If I understand it though, to be fair, all of this is groundbreaking in the sense that this is something that you know had not been done historically speaking before, really, mm -hmm. the, the 20th century. That you mm -hmm. know, after World War II, a lot of these institutions got set up specifically with the purpose of holding people to account in this way right. and avoiding the atrocities of uh, of World War II. But the question for me uh, are the limitations due to uh, our way of conceptualizing legal theory? Mm -hmm. uh, are they sacrifices for the sake of efficiency? Mm. Uh, or yeah, no, is is it is it merely a sacrifice for the sake of applicability at all? Because what is the likelihood that an ideal theory of justice would be applied in current conditions? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Those are complicated questions. I have some opinions. So I would say that um, I guess in my most cynical moments, mm -hmm. I would ask us to think about the difference between sort of criminal justice and social justice, mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about social justice, then we look at societal inequalities. There's been this kind of contestation of Black Lives Matter, like is it our individual policemen bad guys and like individual there might be there there seem very clearly to be some not great individual policemen but then there also seems to be this culture uh, that is pervasive in some police departments that's that's often violent that's not respectful so again these are public servants paid by public monies so if you think of a policeman like you think of me as a public servant professor, right? Then we have a really big gap, right? Where it is that. So there I would say that's a almost that's a social justice issue, right? And I think that we really do a disservice both to the individuals that we pluck out to serve as uh, examples, right? Mm -hmm. This bad egg will now be punished in this way. So we do a disservice to those individuals who've been socialized based on a set of factors that often are outside of their control. Mm -hmm. Like maybe and there are some studies about this 
do you are you prone to a more rigid and potentially less flexible mindset when you decide to join the police does that happen to you afterwards mm. obviously you can ask that question if in these cases where you have these kind of uh, departments with big problems and histories of violence etc so how do we understand that culture and this is in a sense this is institutional theory right mm. every institution creates a culture and so what's the culture of your institution and so in private firms we try and have a more open flexible culture and we can ask ourselves about the culture of say AUP right so mm. what does it mean the culture of being prepared for class and non-plagiarizing, right? And all of those kind of, and the culture, I think we have a real intellectual curiosity in this place and that's actually part of our institutional culture, right? But you can you can encourage that or you can discourage that, right? So these are, these are institutions. And that all, I would lump that into this collective quality that I'll just call social justice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a mistake in a social justice collective world to start chasing after individuals. And I, in my most cynical moments, think that we do that because again, it's a really nice story for us, right? Mm -hmm. Us, we who chase, we say, well, I am certainly not this kind of person who commits this kind of atrocity. And I'm so opposed to these kinds of atrocities that in fact, uh, I have named them criminal and I've spent my resources to find the bad monsters who commit these acts and to deter others from committing these acts by prosecuting them and imprisoning them. But again, I think a lot of times we, I've been looking, um, and I'm writing right now about the Angwin case at the ICC. And Angwin is a former child soldier who went on to become a, a relatively senior member of the Lord's Resistance Army. That's Kony, you might remember the Kony 2012. It was a campaign to basically bring more attention to this, the Lord's Resistance Army that's very violent, committed a series of atrocities. Angwin was just convicted at the International Criminal Court for atrocities he committed after he turned 18. So there's a recognition that he was kidnapped at the age of nine, grew up and socialized in the Lord's Resistance Army. And so that was his normal. But other children just, you know, they died. Some, by the time they got to be 18, managed to run away. And so the question that came up in the Angwin case was, well, Angwin didn't run away, right? So what, how much agency do we afford him, right? This, as an adult, he chose to continue to maraud, to use violence, to kill. There's acts of sexual violence. All of that was very common where Angwin was, and he terrorized <laughs> whole populations. But of course, um, we often say like, that criminal law, to the degree that we follow Durkheim and we think about social control, <laughs> we talk about criminal law as something that sets out those acts that are deviant, right? So deviance, we need to identify deviance and discourage deviance. But in the Lord's Resistance Army, it's not deviant to commit acts of violence. It's actually a necessary part of survival. Mm. So what meaningful agency does someone have who's been socialized in that way? And if there are some people who, for whatever reason, because they were less ambitious, decided they didn't want to be commanders, this was an ambitious person socialized towards violence, right? We take that one person, we try him, we convict him, and in my most cynical moments, I feel we do that because it's very comforting to us. We feel like we are not <laughs> Dominique Ongwen. We are different from him. He is the monster, and we are not. And I think that's a very fundamental mistake. It's a mistake that we don't permit ourselves to make in domestic criminal law. We shouldn't allow ourselves to do in international criminal law. And I think it's a mistake that somewhat colors the way that human rights and human rights discourse are working globally to the degree that it becomes individualized and we stop looking at structural forces and we stop thinking in terms of social justice. That's one hell of an answer. It was a long answer, deeply opinionated answer. Oh, we're done now, Shearston. I got nothing more to say. I don't know what to do with a person like you. Too cynical. 
No, 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 no. It was delightful. Um, actually, I'm. No, it was so comprehensive. I'm having a little trouble bouncing off of it. Mm. Uh, so as a result, I might have to sort of. Uh, take okay. a few steps back. Fair enough, or whatever. Uh, the question I wanted to ask in that case, well, again, you know, because you were sort of touching on this here, because you're talking about the differences here between uh, social justice and sort of you know social condemnation to mm-hmm. some degree, um, and, and this notion of norms mm-hmm. uh, in a sociological sense, sure. uh, and criminal persecution, mm-hmm. which you know are all completely different things, right. because the infrastructures don't really fit together in the same way, mm-hmm. or in the way that they should, and as a result, sometimes you know the pursuit of criminal, uh, criminal persecution mm-hmm. uh, results in injustice. And I was thinking actually just now of the, um, because I believe it was, a, we, we, it, was uh, it was yesterday that Bill Cosby was released. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the argument mm-hmm. used is that he escaped sort of, you know, rather he didn't escape, but he was released yeah. uh, based on the uh, prosecution's actions in right. order to pursue a conviction. Procedural error. Exactly. Which is something that comes up quite frequently. Um, yeah. It's one of the things that I was thinking, rather, one of the things that I sort of think about in the context of Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. specifically George Floyd uh-huh. uh, is that, um, or one of the things that's being said regularly is that there's, uh, there's a very high probability that you know there's going to be uh, an appeal, appeal based right. on yeah. You know, yeah yeah that that is a difficult intersection for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you think the implications of that on? Shane, you're asking me such fun questions. Like I love to pontificate <laughs> in this. This is where I live. So I love to think about this because this is where we we have a notion of justice and fairness Mm. that meets another notion of justice and fairness, and then they battle it out. So one fairness and justice has to do with what we think of as fair. So without knowing, of course, what actually happened, Bill Cosby has now been accused by dozens of women of exactly the same form of behavior. So it looks pretty bad for Bill Cosby. Well, I mean, beyond that, he's, he's actually confessed to this behavior. So at the risk of libeling myself, right, Bill Cosby looks like he had a practice and he did these things that were very violent and very destructive towards women, mm-hmm. right? But then there's a statute of limitations and then there's all the trickinesses of consent because whatever. Mm-hmm. There's all the trickinesses of the things that muddle those cases. And then in this one particular case, this one woman who wasn't barred under the statute of limitations from bringing her claim forward, it turns out there had been a civil suit, mm. as I read. I haven't, I read about it in the paper. So I read two paragraphs, not the 79-page decision from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The two paragraphs in the paper said, it's quite complex, so you know, all, <laughs> all respect how well the paper did. Um, but it seems like basically there had been an agreement made in conjunction with that civil suit. Mm-hmm. And then the the argument is that the prosecutor didn't respect that agreement. The agreement was to not prosecute Cosby, and they did. And so that's another kind of fairness. That's procedural fairness. So Mm. if I give information to you, and you promise me immunity, and then you turn around and don't give me immunity, then this quid pro quo has gone badly for me. And then again, you're the state. So the prosecutor represents the state. The state is very powerful. And I'm just a simple individual. So the possibility for the state to be abusive towards individuals who are, by the way, the citizens of that state, who are supposed to be in control of that state. That's the balance that criminal procedure is seeking to protect. And that's a really important fairness aspect. Mm -hmm. So I think I've told you this story before, but when I worked in Texarkana for a judge, there was a case where um, people who were drug trafficking got pulled over by a local police officer because they had a tail light out or they were driving 66, not 65 or whatever Mm -hmm. it was. But basically they were in a rental car and they were black. And so that's a profile. And the rental car was rented in another state. And the officer looked in their car and found a whole bunch of drugs. 
But when we when that case came to us, there was a question about whether or not the procedures had been followed. And basically, you need to be able to freely consent. Unless you've done something, if the officer isn't in danger, then you need to consent to your car being searched. And when the officer asked the person if they could search the car, they were still holding on to the license. Mm -hmm. So we read that case and looked at the question, was this person free to go? And it seemed to me that they weren't free to go. The police officer has your license and mm -hmm. you're trying to be, right? And so when that came up, it turns out that this person had made the run dozens of times before. Mm -hmm. And so, so you can say, and, and there it's a federal court, they were local police, everyone knew everybody, right? So what do you, here's this actual drug bust. This is like, this is destroying, drugs destroy communities. Mm -hmm. These are illegal, right? This bad thing was found. At the same time, all across the country, people are hassled all the time. And when they're hassled, when they're stopped, when they're pulled over, when they're profiled, and they aren't, they don't have a weapon, they don't have drugs, then we'll never see their case. So those numbers go away. And that's a way in which the state, the very, very powerful state, kind of gets out of jail free. So when the state doesn't follow procedure, then the state has to get smacked, in a sense. Like, this is how procedure guarantees fairness. So the rest of us will be more likely to not be bothered by the police or will be sure that the police treat us correctly when the procedure is always followed, which is to say that if you're going to search my car, I need to be truly able to consent or I need to truly be endangering you, one or the other, right? But we need to have a clear line. And I think that both of those things, those are both really important notions of fairness that will always tend to clash. So at the ICC, there was recently a case called Bemba, and it was just reversed on appeal, just reversed two years ago, a 3-2 decision. And Bemba, this had to do with the Central African Republic. Bemba had been convicted at the trial court level of crimes of sexual violence, which is rarely prosecuted international criminal law, although pervasive in war. So in a sense, we in the international criminal law community, we celebrate any kind of recognition of and trial of. It's very hard to try these cases, and it's super important because it, it's often, it is something that seems to sort of define violence and yet is under-recognized. So it was a big deal when Bemba was convicted, and it had to do with not that he personally had committed these acts, but that troops under his control had, and the question of what he had done to make sure that the populations who were living in the area were subjected to those troops were safe. And then at the appeal level, it was thrown out, right? So he was acquitted. And the 3-2 decision, so very, very close, that was brought great consternation, had everything to do with process. And the question was, when do we know that Bemba, the commander, has done enough? So in this particular case, it was demonstrated that there had been, that his troops had committed rape. There was no evidence that it had been directly ordered, and it rarely is, right? He had, uh, in some circumstances, punished people, including he had put some of his soldiers to death, also problematic for a series of other reasons, right? But there had actually been punishment. So there had been crimes, then there had been discipline. And then the question was, was that enough? And there was an argument made, well, he only did that so that it would look like, of course, he's using the sexual violence as a way of controlling local populations, mm -hmm. and then he punishes some people so that he'll you know, get the international community off his back. But what the ICC said was, okay, maybe, but what's the standard? How can a person like Bemba and his attorney, how can they defend him against this charge? When will we know that he has done enough? And if you can't tell us that, then in fact, procedurally, it's impossible to defend against this crime, right? Mm -hmm. When, if it's a crime like pornography, when when I say it is, right, right? 
like I know it when I see it. If that's the standard for crime, then we're outside of procedural fairness. Hmm. And so that that just recently happened at the ICC and again was quite contentious and people were really unhappy and upset and disappointed because something that had been significant, a recognition of sexual violence, hmm. then there's an acquittal. So it's just one more demonstration of how hard it is to convict on sexual violence. Hmm. But I think the larger procedural question is a really important one that we've uh, really evaded uh, for far too long in international criminal law, which is to say, okay, what's the content of this crime? What, when do we know that we can put someone on trial for this crime against humanity, this atrocity crime? What, is it, what do we need to know in order to say that this intent crime, which is a genocide is an intent crime, that we have met the standard? Right? Because you need to be able to, because then the defendant needs to know what those things are so they have a chance to defend themselves, right? Domestically, in criminal law, we have a really clear idea. So when you have a murder case, you know there's, there's varying degrees of intent to murder, and there's a whole series of practices about what we need to know. If, if you were in a room with a bunch of people and someone turns up dead, and let's say there's three other people, so there's a one-third chance, like one of you's the murderer, but we can never domestically say, well, there's a one-third chance, so we'll just award you a one-third sentence or mm. whatever, right? We need to, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt for the case of each individual, right? That's how we protect, and the burden is on the state mm -hmm. to make that case. Okay, you see, but that seems to me like a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, even at the level of the ICC, what seems to be discussed more than anything else, or at least at the level of international law, what seems to be the norm and what seems to be discussed is, you know, holding individuals to account for their actions. Mm -hmm. But let's turn this around. When you think about Nuremberg, mm -hmm. it wasn't a trial of Nazi Germany. It mm -hmm. was a trial of Nazi leaders. Mm -hmm. As a result, the state itself was not held to account for its actions. And it seems to me that uh, this is still the case. Mm -hmm. We have spent time building up this, this infrastructure that allows us to try individuals, mm -hmm. but not necessarily try uh, states. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's also the issue of a power dynamic, because it's not a simple hierarchy between international institutions and mm -hmm. the states at a lower level. Mm. Um, so what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's also really interesting and really complicated. You know, of course, there are ways that states can bring each other to court. That's the International Court of Justice. And in fact, the Gambia mm -hmm. just did this against Myanmar regarding mm -hmm. the Rohingya. You know? so this is, and that was kind of an amazing case, because mm -hmm. the Gambia, basically the justice, the minister of justice, used to work at the ICTR in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And so he had been on a government trip completely randomly and had actually gone to Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh and seen the Rohingya refugees and it reminded him of what he had seen in Rwanda is what he reported. Mm -hmm. And so then he went back home and said, what, what can my state, and the Gambia has just, had just emerged from this period of autocracy and human rights violations into a period of democracy and a new government, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so they, the, they use the international machinery that exists to go after Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Now, what will happen? if Myanmar is, uh, gets a judgment against it by the International Court of Justice, what will that mean? And there that becomes a series of questions about, well, uh, what will the international community decide to do about Myanmar? Like, will it somehow, will it be, uh, will it be condemned? Will we sanction it? You know, all the things that, all the tools that we use, generally speaking, to try and encourage states. But in terms of Nazi Germany, there's these interesting questions about the collective and individual guilt question, right? Mm. So you have Hitler is voted to power, right? Mm. So it's the last democratic election they have for a while, but it is a democratic election, right? So I think there are sort of interesting questions to think about. And it's not on necessarily a genocidal campaign, but it's on a populist campaign that we could probably recognize nowadays. We certainly in Europe have plenty of parties. Mm. Plenty of parties that are making similar, I would say, similar campaign 
uh, promises about you know the the greatness of one kind of people and mm. what that means and how that should look sort of socially and politically in our in our European in our European states. So I I don't know I think it's actually a bit it's a bit erroneous to then say I mean so I live full time in Denmark. Now, right now, there are some government ministers who've gone to Rwanda, and they're contemplating sending asylum seekers to a third country, which potentially could be Rwanda. The plan would be that you seek asylum in Denmark, you're sent to Rwanda, you wait in Rwanda, and if you're granted asylum, you get to stay in Rwanda. Now, so Denmark is going to outsource. It's, it's contemplating outsourcing mm. asylum. So I'm pretty opposed to that. But I'm living in Denmark. I'm paying my taxes there. That's happening on my watch. And in this case, it's the left government, right? So I'm actually not allowed to vote at the federal level. I can only vote locally in Denmark. But still, I think that it would be, it, it's not unfair, even when Denmark does this, to be like, hey, Shirsten, what did you do? That's you, your country you were living in, right? So I don't know why we would want to take my responsibility. I don't agree with that. I didn't, I'm actually not able to vote for those people. But I do think that when our leaders do things in our names, I'm, I'm not sure it's the best policy to say, yeah, yeah, we'll come for the leaders after. You're, it's fine. You didn't know. Exactly. All right. So, and I think, right. So I think that that's, Part of, I mean, Nuremberg was also not set up to try the Holocaust, right? Mm. I mean, this genocide as a, as, a, as a crime didn't exist. Crimes Against Humanity was invented, basically, by the Nuremberg Tribunal mm. because the overwhelming evidence of Nazi Germany's crimes against its own citizens, just what, one had to do something with it. But up till then, what a state does to its citizens is kind of the state's business, right? So this, again, I think is a really important, really magnificent, progressive articulation of rights and ideas, right? Mm. Just because you happen to live in state X doesn't mean that anything can happen to you and it's nobody else's business. That's fantastic. That's great. And that, that's something that comes from Nuremberg. But I don't think, I think it's a problem to say then that we don't ask sort of regular Germans and frankly other Europeans, right, what part they played in what ended up being a massively violent episode of European history. Well, let's fast forward 70 years. Uh -huh. Okay, very good, very good. So here we are. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had these trials. We, we encounter um, other countries with, mm. with, with some accusations of genocide leveled against them, uh, with similar levels of power, let's say, to mm. Nazi Germany and the international community. Um, and yet uh, the defenses used are often, one, it's none of your business, two, it's not happening, and mm. three, you know, but, but, look, but look, we eliminated poverty. Mm. You know? So... Um, how effective is this approach ultimately? You know, even if theoretically the constructs that were that were created at the time are useful, how how effective have they been? Hmm. So now I'm really so now I'll I'll talk again about things that I'm like, oh, I don't know enough about this to say. But I'm thinking about the Uyghurs, right? Hmm. So I'm thinking about the Uyghurs in China, and here I think our human rights uh, ideas and norms, articulations, regulations, treaties, generally like decades and decades of like hmm. like of fighting it out. In international organizations where we're talking about very specific words and what you know, and all of that is is meaningful that actually helps us look at that situation and classify what China is doing to its weaker population as a violation as something that we all should be concerned about and it seems like if you and I are wearing or using things made in China the possibility that those things were made by slave laborers who are Uyghurs Chinese Uyghurs who have been imprisoned not zero Right? So we can all get engaged in that. And at the same time, China, not my field of expertise, has for a long time engaged in a series of social experiments that starts with the Great Leap Forward, which is really devastating for regular, like the Han Chinese, right? Like that's, it's, it's devastating for them. 
they engage in large-scale social experiments that bring on famine or a, a series of other, the one-child policy, right? There have been a, a number of really big experiments that China has engaged in as part of a Chinese construction of social justice in a way. And here in the, what I'm, so now I'm even farther, that's already something I don't know so much about, right? But I can have an opinion. But then I think about the construction of France. Like France used to be full of little languages and you still have like Breton, right? Mm. You can find Breton and I think somewhere in the south. Voilà. But after that, the little potluck of France obliterated, mm. obliterated by the centralizing impulses of France, obliterated in a time before the international human rights standards that we have today. So we didn't have those kind of conversations. So there's a state building exercise that is, and there's a theorist I love named Brad Roth who talks about ruthlessness. This is his term, which I feel is super useful. And he says, listen, states are ruthless. And so the question is, when does ruthlessness pass into criminality? Mm. And he says, our wonderful theorist Brad Roth, there's no, you can't say. It's, that's really the pornography standard. Their ruthless is my criminal and we're not gonna ever be able to actually give ourselves a standard that could be evenly applied. So. I am opposed, I stand on record, I tried hard not to buy Chinese-made goods, I'm opposed to what's happening to the Uyghurs. But I'm from the United States, which obliterated Native Americans, mm. right? And living on land that up until even three generations ago, Native Americans lived on, but they're all gone, right? So again, I'm telling myself, I'm, I'm, I'm narrating something, I'm comfortably narrating a vision of America that absolutely a number of dead and still living peoples could could disagree with, right? So, and, and here we are in France, where everyone speaks French, and of course we're all one people. And again, I think that's also because 300 years ago, a very effective centralization process created a place that we now recognize as Nixigon, right? So I, I'm really not defending what China's doing, but I think that because we look at it with our 21st century eyes, and this is perhaps part of the progress narrative of human rights, we say, ooh, absolutely not. But in fact, we're living in countries that did something similar China, is trying to consolidate itself. It has done a number of things. This is yet, it seems to me, one more step of this consolidation. Of course, and that's 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 the development narrative. Mm -hmm. That's the whole, um, uh, oh, attaining the moderately prosperous society. And right. um, the, uh, the same the same uh, argument is used in the context of uh, carbon emissions mm -hmm. or CO2 emissions. Right. Uh, countries saying, well, yeah, sure, you know, it's bad, but mm -hmm. you did it and mm -hmm. we need to develop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh -huh. Yeah. And there's really no, it's true that it's that, that it's a matter of, well, that there is a matter of fairness there that's just, that, that can't really be effectively addressed. Right. But it's not in the public good. Yeah. Likewise, it's not necessarily in the individual good of the people living mm -hmm. uh, under uh, these oppressive regimes. Yeah. And it's also how you define mm -hmm. the public, right? So there's a version of the public good where the Uyghurs are themselves assisted by their own destruction. But I'm not sure the Uyghurs would agree with that, right? Like oh, that, absolutely. Right? But maybe three generations from now, if China's successful in what is effectively a form of genocide, so I just I think that these these questions about public good are them these are political questions and political questions always involve interest they always involve different standpoints and mm -hmm. they usually are non-resolvable there's no way to get to one answer where it works for everybody. Oh, that's a wonderful answer. Okay, so there's there's not really anything we can do about it. It can't ever really be resolved. So so, so I would say so. Why am I a proponent of human rights after all that? Mm -hmm. Because in fact I would like 
I would I would like that the Uyghurs are not genocided and I would like that we find I think that human rights is a really powerful language that you and I can find mm -hmm. where we can protest I don't I've not been there I haven't seen those people but these are reports and this is problematic not only because individuals are um, are being treated unfairly but because and this is one of the things that you see with uh, with atrocity crimes because an entire collective of people is being changed and obliterated and and that's something that cannot be resolved or Almost never. I guess the Irish. There's some Irish who've worked really hard to bring like Irish language back, but it's really mm. hard to bring. And the, and in Poland, I think that there's actually people who are like learning klezmer, right, to like mm. rebring to try and recreate this kind of a, a civilization that was lost or a culture that was lost. But there's this kind of individual collective problem that is what what international criminal law and the atrocity crimes mm. and and the larger sense of human rights is seeking to protect and that's important and in some ways it's like the extinction of a species it's mm. irreversible right so and i think it's really important that we have a language to recognize that and that we ha and we start to instead of saying well it's an omelet and so the eggs get broken mm. we start to kind of make a plea to like be more gentle with the eggs or maybe like less omelets that are super bad for your heart or whatever right that we can actually ask for different forms of organization this to me and i know it's super enlightenment theory of me but like this is where i see that there is a progress narrative that's meaningful that justice as a concept actually is for it's in the forefront of how we talk about political interests it's not nothing mm. so when you say i want this i say is it fair mm. and maybe in the past it was just i want this and now i come with well is it fair would everyone agree it's fair it's certainly not fair to these people. Why do you think you get to have what you want when it's so unfair to these people? And that, I think, is a really powerful political tool that comes from human rights. Hmm. I think that has the chance to make a more just, more balanced world, a more socially just world. So you do ultimately believe that there is, you know, a sort of confluence between liberalism and institutionalism, because what you just said could mm -hmm. also be applied, you know, as a defense of procedural norms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I mean, I could, I could apply everything that you just said to Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting turn, and it sort of brings uh, brings a little bit more nuance back. Mm -hmm. up. Not not to say that you're not nuanced, obviously. I think I think it's often Shane fair to say that I'm not very nuanced. No, but when you say Bill Cosby, like should Bill Cosby be in jail? Bill Cosby is one dude. He's now quite old. Hmm. Bill Cosby has been released from jail, and it seems he is unlikely to go back to jail. So we're done with the story of Bill Cosby. But aside hmm. from the one guy, Bill Cosby, criminal law is never just about Bill hmm. Cosby. Of course, it's always about all of us. So. We've learned from Bill Cosby, we've learned that one, 30 years ago, it seems to have been pretty normalized that there were certain forms of behavior that already 30 years later were like, wow. I think if you found out that your coworker engaged in behavior like that, you'd be like, uh, no, like that's not okay, mm -hmm. right? So no matter how powerful that person is, we really, this is the Harvey Weinstein, again, the, the Me Too movement is really asking us to think a little bit about what was normal mm -hmm. and inviting us to reflect on, and that is progress, right? It's Absolutely. no longer normal. So I'm now gonna look at you askance and say, you did what now? No, <laughs> that's not okay. So Bill Cosby, what happens with him, and, and I, I can understand for many of his victims, it's very disappointing. But for us as a society, there's huge progress that comes from the fact that he was on trial, the fact that we had these series of conversations, and the fact that that behavior that was so normal that he engaged in it for decades, I think with many people being aware, certainly with Harvey Weinstein, that's what we learned, everybody, it was an open secret what he mm. did, right? That behavior which had been normalized has become or is in the process of becoming deviant. And that, and, and deviance means we don't tolerate it. Right? And so, and, and regular people don't tolerate it. It's, it's harder for it to be normalized. 
that I think is part of a progress narrative. And that, of course, is based on the rights of the people who are victimized by that behavior. We don't want that behavior. Well, certainly. But that all of this does a disservice to the people who are currently, you know, living under uh, oppression that will, you know, at some point in yeah. the you know, near future be deemed uh, right. unfair or that are already sort of deemed unfair, but, right. you know, like everyone turns a blind eye to some degree. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a cold comfort to them because, mm-hmm. you know, to know that in, you know, 20, 30 years, what, you know, will consider what happened to them to be uh, yeah. inexcusable. Yeah, I find, like, when I look at Yemen, for example, yeah. I find this is a, a, a perfect and horrifying example of precisely Syria, right? Mm. People are like, later on we'll try them. Like, no, could we do something right now? People are starving in Yemen right now. Cholera is taking people in Yemen right now. So what are we doing right now? And mm. the idea that sort of there'll be some reckoning in a decade feels really dissatisfying when we look at those crises. Um, at the same time, I think that the changing, and again, I, I feel more comfortable talking about the places where I have a greater cultural affinity, but I think that the change in when I look at gay rights, when I look at the ways in which what I grew up with and what my children are growing up with in terms of what what tolerance entails, what you have the right to be, mm. what is outside the norm, like homophobia would never be accepted by my children in any way, shape, or form, and in fact, cisgendered language is often rejected by mm. my children. To me, that is, that's an extraordinary progress I've seen in my lifetime, right? So does that, for all the people who are my age, who grew up in a closet, unable to, that doesn't, that doesn't fix their childhood, right? Like that doesn't make it better, that doesn't, that doesn't, but when we can see the progress over generations, we see that, and this is like, like a fatuous thing for me to say, but like the suffering wasn't for nothing, right? Like there was suffering, but there was also improvement. And I think that when you see, when you see things improving, so someone in Yemen, I don't think they're seeing much improvement. The Uyghurs, they're not seeing improvement, right? We're on the kind of the downslide in terms of rights in China and how we treat war crimes in some far-flung places. This is not great. But in terms of the movements I see in our own societies, in terms of our own social justice, I feel super hopeful, right? And again, not because it makes up for the bad things that happen, but because I feel like when we look at the narratives and articulations, we see progress. And that I think is, I think that is a human rights story. And that's a human rights victory. All right, well, I have two two questions I want to ask you, mm-hmm. uh, two, two final questions I want yeah. to ask you. The first is, um, by what right do we uh, allow ourselves to live in slowly advancing, more progressive societies and just sort of let the world, you know, not, not necessarily care as much about the world burning mm-hmm. around us? By what right do we continue doing that, particularly in a world where we're so interconnected? Mm-hmm. I, and I realize this isn't a legal question, it's more yeah. an ethical. No, right? yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, Shane, that's too big. I think that there's a there, people have done a lot of good work with the kind of local movement, mm. right? So like, if you can't fix, I can't fix anything that's happening in Yemen, but I'm really upset by, for example, a policy in Denmark that I find is Islamophobic. So I'm working against that. Mm. Like that's, that's something I think that's a local human rights violation. I'm doing what I can. And the first thing I'm doing as an academic is I'm trying to like publish on it. Did you know that we are revoking citizenship of dual citizens for being Islamic when they commit terror? And terror can be like, writing about ISIS in positive ways on Facebook, right? And so, of course, that, that sets a standard of revoking a dual citizenship for any reason. Which, it means that yeah. once you have two citizenships or the possibility, hmm. right? So which is to say, like, Britain had this case where they, Britain had written the Iraqi constitution to allow to grant citizenship to hmm. people who are born in Iraq. So then if you go and you invade someplace, rewrite their constitution and they grant citizenship, then you can get rid of a bunch of citizens that you don't want to have to deal with in your criminal justice system. Hmm. That I think is very messed up, right? So I think there's something to be said about agitating locally. So I can't, I don't know, the, the world is full of things. I don't, 
speak any form of Chinese, I don't know what to do about the Uyghurs, but in the place where I live and work, I can speak and read Danish, so I'm going to try and make people aware of this thing. And I think that that's, I think, for we who want to be activists and make things better, that's my suggestion, that local is enough. Mm -hmm. All right. Second question, changing tracks completely. What do you think about space and... (laughs) (laughs) The final frontier! Um, yeah, no. Uh, so what do you think about space? What do you think about the law in the context of all these things that are uh, on their way uh, to emerging? Mm. Asteroid mining, mm. uh, colonization of Mars, uh, the fact that more and more it's seeming like there might be a corporate exploration of space yeah. as opposed to an international or a national one. Shane, in this, I'm so pedantic and I'm such a lawyer. I'm so boring. I, like That to me, it's like sci-fi. Dude, like our oceans are heating up. Let's focus on our common... Like, we want to worry about the commons, we got a lot of commons right here that mm. might as well be. I mean, after when we had the, the, the Gulf of Mexico oil spring, right? Like mm. people said at the time, it's two miles underground or whatever it was. Like it's effectively outer space, right? Mm. Asteroid mining, ugh, have at it. No, right now we need to talk about how we manage ourselves on Earth. It's my most boring pedantic lawyer. So I, have, I think it, that, is, that is not, I think, the most pressing place to put our energies. I um, agree with that. Uh, <laughs> That's a very good answer. Uh, allow me to retort. Uh-huh. These things are, uh, by uh, most metrics, mm-hmm. at worst, a few decades in the future. Most mm. likely, uh, probably you know, ten to fifteen years in the future. Mm. There is an incredible amount of potential for exploitation, or rather, there's a large risk that you know these resources will be exploited in uh, incredibly um, unhelpful ways. Let's mm. you know put it euphemistically. Mm-hmm. And perhaps we should uh, give some thought to it before mm-hmm. before it becomes an issue. Because, mm. like, uh, for example, asteroid mining in particular, if it's you know, for one, only the largest corporations will be sure. able to have access to these yeah. sorts of resources. Yeah. But once they have access to these sorts of resources, it's going to be just open season. The amount of the amount of stuff we have floating in the solar system will, will you know is is so many times more mm. than what is already present on the planet. It'll just you know. The, It'll make corporations more powerful than most governments. Mm, but we which, already we already have that, and I mean we have Amazon, right? We have I mean, one guy mm. is richer than some countries, right? So I just so and we already have like the stuff that you and I are walking around our cell phones, mm. where there's two precious metals that are essential to cell phones, and you can actually trace a bunch of conflict in Africa to mm. control over the minds of those precious metals. That mm. could well be messy, but I think we have today and tomorrow, I mean, when you, mining, mm. mining in Africa, mining in South America, mm. like you want to go after something, like you want to look at some human rights violations. And, and, and we are implicated because what we, the way we like to live, those cars we're driving and those cell phones that we're trading in every couple years, et cetera, et cetera, these glorious computers, they are reliant on those, as I understand, basically non-recycled, but absolutely life-depriving precious metals that are, are driving this this conflict in places that I think we can all name the countries, mm. but the localities we've never heard of amongst people and groups and language groups that we've never, so that, that we're all implicated in that. So I would say, I think, that, I think that your question about space is a question about control of precious common resources that have an expensive, an expensive implication for Earth. And I would say, uh-huh, but we have those problems right now already. Let's look at those first. Well. <laughs> Thank you for bringing me back down to earth. Um, 
I think that's a good place to, to wrap up okay, on in that excellent. case. Thank you, Tristan. Ah. This has been Professor Tristan Carlson of AUP and the University of South Denmark. I actually had just moved to Roskilde University. Ah, okay. Ro- mm-hmm. Roskilde, Roskilde University. University, yeah. All right. So, yes, mm-hmm. uh, I'm your host, Shane McLaurin, and uh, yes, signing out for today on Tocqueville 21. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com, and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.